We're finishing our um, uh, first chunk of uh, one, uh, looking at 1 Corinthians. We've gone through it at uh, uh, quite a gentle pace. We'll probably speed up slightly, but we're going to have a break as well in the new year and look at, it, look at some Old Testament and, and some other things for a while before we come back to 1 Corinthians. So if you're a regular here, over a period, you will, I hope, build a deep and rich um, uh, knowledge and understanding of 1 Corinthians. But there is other bits in the Bible, and we, so we're going to um, uh, diverge a little bit after Christmas and then come back to 1 Corinthians later. At the end of chapter 3 here, Paul comes to a first climax, really, of what he has been saying. And so it's very appropriate that we bring our first series to a conclusion at this point. Remember, he has been speaking to this church in Corinth, which has descended into quarrelling over personalities, everybody jostling for power and for status. And Paul has shown them that it's that stemmed from pride. Pride which wasn't really prepared to follow Jesus. Jesus who loved sacrificially. Jesus who accepted that the world would scorn him and ridicule him. Jesus who finally actually went to death on the cross. Now they weren't prepared to follow that Jesus who, would be, who was labelled as a fool. Chapters 1 and 2, again and again, said, uh, frankly, if we're believers, if we're Christians here this morning, we must accept that the world will call us fools, and proud people can't do that. Then in chapter 3, he began, on a slightly more positive note, to paint a picture of what God was doing in his people, amongst his people, and what his role and other people's role was in it. Remember the image of the field in chapters 5 to 9. You are the field, he says. And actually, everybody is like labourers in that field, working together, not competing for status. The only one with any status in God's field is actually the one who causes the miracle of growth, God himself. Or remember last week we saw that image of a building that Paul uses. God is building a building, a beautiful building, a durable building that will endure even though God will finally come and judge. It will, uh, uh, like gold and silver, survive the fire. So, uh, Um, now we come to Paul's conclusion and we could sum up his uh, um, statement of uh, what he's trying to say in verses 16 to 23 of 1 Corinthians 3 with this sentence. What God is doing amongst us in the church in Corinth amongst us here is far far bigger than you think. First of all, he says, God's people are far more precious than you think. He continues continues this image of a building in verse 16 um, there as he describes the church now as a specific kind of building, a temple, verse 16. Don't you know, he says, 
that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you. It's a familiar image for the Corinthians because they lived in a city where the great temple of Aphrodite loomed above the whole city on a hill. Or the the, uh, similarly big temple of Apollo dominated the marketplace. They knew about temples. They knew as well that temples were sacred places. Places where the gods dwelt in some special way. Places that were exempt actually from many of the other laws of Roman society. Set apart as special to those gods. But you are the temple of the only God. The living God, says Paul. You. You were mixed, turbulent, immature gathering of followers of Jesus, stumbling along, troubled by innumerable problems. You are nevertheless the place where God dwells. And because he dwells there amongst you, you are precious to him. You are special to him. You are set apart for him. You are sacred. And so comes a very solemn warning in verse 17. Anyone who destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. And you are that temple. God is just, says Paul. He punishes people precisely according to their sins. These self-styled leaders who had come into the church in Corinth thought that it was just a place where they could work out their private ambitions and, and preen their egos. But he says, you've stumbled across the most precious thing in the world as far as God is concerned, God's church, God's sacred church, God's people, God's sacred people. And if you set out to destroy them, you will face the entirely appropriate consequences. You in turn will be destroyed, he says. It's deeply chilling, isn't it? God is not just a nice teddy bear. He's not just a ho-ho-hoing Father Christmas, is he? He is, says the Bible, a jealous husband, a passionate lover, an awesome judge. Of, uh, he, he is passionately committed to his people. He is passionately committed to his people here. If we tear them apart, if we tear this fellowship or any other fellowship of believers apart because of our foolish immaturities or our petty egos or our willful sin, says the Apostle, we will face the God who loves these people, who considers them sacred. What a warning to people like me. What a a warning to... The elders here, what a warning to house group leaders, to others in leadership. Yes, we are all weak and fallible and imperfect people and sometimes we will damage one another. We need to repent and seek forgiveness. 
uh, of that because it is an awesome responsibility to lead God's people. God holds us responsible for caring for one another. And anyone who sets out to do damage will have to personally answer to the living God who loves these people. I sometimes see people doing terrible damage because they just can't see beyond their own issues, their own pain, their own egos, their own selfish desires. They treat God's people as if they somehow were just there to make me happy and serve my desires. And God says, actually, they belong to me, not you. And woe betide you if you damage them. But what an extraordinary encouragement in these two verses as well. Um, God's Spirit, says the Apostle Paul, is here. God lives amongst us. He indwells the hearts of all true Christians. He, He moves amongst groups of believers like this. And his presence makes us sacred to him. Perhaps some of us feel insecure or fearful or, or perhaps just adrift a, a in the world. Well, hear this. If you are a Christian, you are an object of unimaginable preciousness to God. That is a warning to others. I tell you, that is a promise to you. And he guards you with his life. Actually, he guards you with the life of his Son, Jesus Christ, whom he gave that first Christmas, who even died for you that first Easter, to forgive all your sins and put a mark on you which said, This one is mine. If you're a Christian here this morning, That is your status before God. You are sacred. And people see that. Yesterday at the live manger again and again I heard people saying there's something special about this. I've been coming for years, it's the highlight of my Christmas. It always brings tears to my eyes, I don't know why. How do you make this event so special, people say. And I didn't quite have the courage to say it, but let me say it here at least. It's special because you're special. Special because God has made you special in his eyes and he wants to display you as that. like a temple that stands there in the city displaying the glory of God. God's people are more precious to him than we think. We need to be solemnly warned about that. We need to see the joyful truth in that. 
God's people as well, says the Apostle in verses 18 to 19. They're more different than you think. Verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool, so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. Now we saw these themes a lot in chapter 1, so we're not going to pursue them at length. Paul's alluding back to things that he's already said. A part of the problem in Corinth was that the false leaders were trying to uh, uh, run the church according to society's rules and expectations, according to society's wisdom. And Paul has been telling them that it's completely wrong. You cannot run God's church according to the world's wisdom. Because actually the truths that are most important in Christianity, the world will consider foolish. No, God's church is not just another part of society that somehow works in the same way as every other club and society there is. God's church is, is completely different. It runs according to rules that the world would call foolish. It exists in a very real sense in a parallel universe. People who watch us and examine our beliefs, they will always think, conclude, that is foolish. Foolish, for instance, that we believe in a creator, in the creator of the universe, that he, that he, that he contracted himself to be a little baby laid in a manger. Foolish because we believe that God the Son through whom all things were made, without whom nothing was made that has been made, let the creatures that he had made nail him to the cross. Foolish because we believe that the one person who ever lived, who as John described had life in himself, life that, that, that emanated just from him, should allow his creatures to take his life. Foolish because we believe that the one and only God somehow allowed himself to be torn apart so that God on the cross says to God in heaven, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because only actually as God was torn apart could there be an appropriate punishment for our sins so that we need not be separated from God. And foolish perhaps more than anything else because Christians believe that the path to true joy is actually to follow God the Son who gave himself in love and sacrifice and complete surrender to the only God. Finally dying on the cross. But before he did that, saying to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. All of those things to the world around make no 
sense. But God knows better. As Paul says, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. He knows that the wisdom of the world actually never produces any real fruit in the real things that matter. In fact, God, more than knowing that, he is personally committed to overthrowing the so-called wisdom of the world. He catches the wise in their craftiness, he says, here. And God is absolutely determined. He makes sure that people living according to the truths that he has revealed, foolish though they seem, will always show themselves to be more wise and more whole and more joyful and more content and more human and more fruitful than those who follow the wisdom of the world. I mean, to return just to, to, to our life in the last few weeks, what a stupid thing to uh, spend a whole evening in prayer. A couple of Mondays ago, rather when we could have been getting on with organising things. What a silly thing for those who uh, fasted for a day, do, do, doing without food. Doesn't seem to make much sense. What a foolish thing to, to um, uh, organise something like the live manger, which was enormously hard work for lots of people, cost quite a lot of money, required a large team of people to work together with all the stresses and tensions involved in that. Other organisations do put on events, but they're fundraisers, actually. But ours was a gift to the community. But it was put on, you see, by people who had learned that it is more blessed to give than to receive. By people who wanted to demonstrate the love and grace and the sheer beauty of Christ. And people see that. And the glory of Christ shone brightly yesterday. We gained immeasurably more than we gave. Because God loves to see people who give themselves to others for him. Jim Elliot so memorably said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot gain, cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. The world will will call us fools as we give up our money, as we give up our time, as we give enormously costly emotional support to others, as we give and give and give, as we give our whole lives to Christ and say, here you are, use it for your glory. We are not fools. Because we give what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. 
that God's people are more different than we think. Work according to different rules. But they're rules that work. And then says Paul, becoming even more stratospheric in what he says, what he's saying. God's people are more privileged than you think as well. These uh, three last three verses of this chapter are, are designed to to, uh, to to blow our minds. Let's just read them. So then, no more boasting about men. They've been competing about who was the greatest uh, amongst them. No more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are you yours and you are of Christ. And Christ is of God. Corinthians were arguing over um, who, was the, who was the greatest. What a waste of time, says Paul. God gives you everything. God gives us, as he says in 2 Peter 1, everything we need for life and godliness. Or he meets all our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, as he says in Philippians 4. He, did not, he who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things, he says in Romans 8. All things, everything, all our needs. So, says Paul, God has given this church the church in Corinth, Paul and Apollos and Cephas, Peter. Today he gives you Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, Jude, the mysterious writer to the Hebrews. Some of the greatest believers who ever lived, lived and you've got their best bits all summarised here. And then he gives you Peter Comer, Richard Brewster, Dave Trenchard, Charlie Curry, Greg Bannister, Daniel Blanche, Colin Wells, Dick Dowsett, Martin Grope, Tim Guest, all the other elders, your home group leader, your Christian friends, access to thousands upon thousands of books, sermons on the internet so you could listen to one of the best sermons in the world every day if you want to. He just has showered you with blessings of people. But he's already said all of that uh, um, earlier in uh, chapter 1. He goes further now. He says, and actually, God's given you the world. Jesus who commanded the winds and the waves to cease and who now has all authority in heaven and on earth given to him, he rules over all things for his church. He sustains all things by his powerful word, says the writer to the Hebrews. Though he hasn't completely eradicated evil yet, nevertheless, he now rules over evil so that even evil cannot do its worst in us. Indeed, God now takes it 
and he shapes it in his hand so that good comes from it. An evil event never ceases to be evil. The spiritual darkness, forces of darkness in this world have not been um, uh, destroyed yet. They never cease to intend evil and to achieve evil. The day when they do will be the day when Christ returns. But God, for believers, oversees even the evil things that come into our lives. And he works for good in them. The Apostle Paul says, he works for good in all things, so that we who were predestined to be conformed to the glory of Christ will indeed share in his glory. That is God's project in every single Christian's life. And he even uses the evil experiences, the bad experiences, to make you more Christ-like. The world is yours, says the Apostle. Absolutely everything in this sphere of existence that comes to you is for you. To make you whole. To make you complete. To make you like Christ. Hard and tough and painful though it may be sometimes because there is still, still evil out there and there is still evil in here. It is for you to achieve God's good purposes in your life. All things are yours, he says. And then he goes beyond that. Life and death are yours, he says. Do you see that? All things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, or life, or death. If we live, if we continue to live until uh, um, uh, for, for another year, that is because God has decided that he has more good things that he wants to do in your life. And if you die tomorrow, that is because God has decided my work in that person is complete and I will now take them to glory. If you're a Christian, that is what your future holds. Either life or death, in both of which God is doing good. They are God's gifts to you to make you whole. And the present and the future, he says, are yours. Today, God has given you this day to glorify him, to be shaped by him, to be made a more complete human being, a more Christ-like human being. As you think and pray in your heads and your hearts, now, 
as you talk to people over coffee in just a little while, as you, as you, as you go home and talk to your friends and family, as you ring up that person to invite them to Carols by Candlelight tonight, as you go and enjoy the Carols by Candlelight service, as you go to work on Monday morning and seek to glorify God by the quality of your life at work, as you deal with those difficult situations, as you rejoice in those good things, the present is yours for your benefit to make you whole. And so is the future. That is not going to stop until you meet God face to face. The present is yours. The future is yours. And all of that because God has done something absolutely profound in you. You are of Christ, he says. He seems to mean you are, you are united with Christ. You have been bound up with Christ. You have been irrevocably linked to Christ. In fact in a similar way to the way in which Christ is irrevocably linked from God. Christ is of God, he says in verse 23. And so just as God will not eternally do bad to Christ because they are linked in love and unity, so those who are adopted into that mysterious eternal relationship and so are of Christ, will not have eternal evil done to them. Because we belong to Christ. Because Christ belongs to God. And God doesn't hurt himself. Now if you're not a believer here this morning, if you haven't yet become a follower of Jesus Christ if you haven't yet asked him to forgive all of your sins through his death on the cross and you haven't yet said here is my life I entrust it to you I give it to you I surrender it to you because that's where my greatest joy is if you haven't yet done that And these truths aren't yet for you. We must take that seriously. The world will only be a hostile place in many ways. Death will be a fearful prospect. And you won't be able to say, Christ is mine. I appeal to you as I often do. Can you see the glory of it? Can you see the beauty of it? Come to Christ. And if you have, if you have come to Christ, then all this is yours. Why paddle around in petty issues of ego 
minor, trivial things that consume so much of our attention. When all things are yours, when all of God's people are yours to further you to Christ, when all the experiences you'll ever have in the world are yours to further you to Christ, when even your death will be God's last great chapter in a glorious story and before that time when every element of your life can be a process of discovering and enjoying what it means to be of Christ this Christmas we celebrate the beginning of the great chain of events that brought us to God. And it's far, far bigger than you think. It looks like a little stable with a few shepherds and kings coming. But it's actually the beginning of a process which changed you eternally and changed the world eternally. Enjoy it.